Punctum, a podcast exploring the creative practice of contemporary photographers and the bookmaking process. Coming to you from my Somerville, Massachusetts studio. I am Jay Sabella Smith, the creator and host of Got Punctum. Welcome. Welcome, Tabitha, and welcome to those joining us on our Zoom live meeting space, our conversation. And welcome to those listening via our podcast, Got Punctum. My work centers on concept development and isolating the dynamic elements of creative practice. My work is about exploring how you see and why it matters. A note about our format. For those listening to Got Punctum, you may access the visuals we reference by links in our episode notes, which will lead you to a summary on my website of this Zoom recording. And visuals are also available on Tabitha's website, on RVB Books website, and the Mills College Museum of Art website under their exhibition history. All these links are shared in my summary and on the episode notes. I had a particularly visceral and expansive reaction to surface tension. And consequently, the length of my introduction reflects the width and depth of this encounter. And it speaks to how what you see, Tabitha, leads me to see. I bring in the context I found to frame your work, and I raise issues I hope we unpack together today. So my introduction is not one listing your education, experience, or accomplishments. This information is available elsewhere. I introduce you with a frame of how I understand how you see. In all honesty, as I immersed myself in surface tension, I was not prepared for the meteoric ride. I am curious, and we'll ask you a little later, when along your journey, you knew you were creating such a powerful tool. The culmination of your curiosity, experimentation, and innovation basically shot me like an astronaut into the stratosphere. With surface tension, you provide us with an unparalleled vantage point of our complex contemporary existence as individuals and as a society, and frankly, as a species. This space metaphor kept coming to me, and my first analogy was the Hubble telescope. Go figure. And I think it's because you were this powerful magnifier and reflector. You, in essence, provide us with a mirror of ourselves, simultaneously one so specific and yet incredibly expansive. I realized you took me, and I believe you take your viewers, on a rocket ride. Just like a spaceship pierces the atmosphere, the layers of the atmosphere, which provide us humans on Earth protection, you take us into upper atmospheres to pierce what seems like protection. Ultimately, in a very generous manner, you pierce through our protective layers, which I would define as layers of denial. I consider you an intrepid explorer, and I experience you in an active relationship 
with your creative process. It is so evident you do an essential piece of creating. You enter into a dialogue with your work. You listen, you follow hunches, you research, and you allow ideas and concepts to unfurl. I can see the connectivity of your projects, regardless of subject. You want to get below surfaces. You want us to see underlying forces and feelings. I believe one of your intentions is to make our invisible human experiences into tangible objects, offering us an encounter, reflecting another way to see, encouraging us to talk about what lies beneath the surface. With surface tension, you animate our complexity as emotional beings in a human body. You challenge preconceived ideas of who we are, and you prove our choices, even the mundane daily ones, create profound impact. You are a keen observer of culture and the ways this influences our communication. We can choose to enhance or to control connection, access, and agency. Scholar Sadia Hartman argues that visual culture knits together people across time and space. I see you at the forefront of this collective activity. Creating imagery which cuts across time and space and reflects the reality that we live with abject terror, yet, we know the sublime, and we are made of undestroyable forces of love. So while, while I was strapped into this rocket ride, I reached for a resource to help me translate my experience, to provide some terra firma. I found it in a small volume from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Press titled Visual Culture by Alexis L. Boylan. It is a self-professed guide to navigating the complexities of visual culture. Boylan describes visual culture as, quote, the study of everything in an attempt to understand it all. She goes on to say, the visual is both a punitive and liberatory mechanism to embody, display, reflect, enact, and signify. Visual culture is less a field than an attitude, a way of thinking and looking, or a means of inclusion unbound by disciplinary convention. Visual culture is a place of possibility, of peace, of community, and of creativity. Boylan concludes, confronting the visual atmosphere is of profound importance now. Artist and theorist Alan D'Souza notes that a book does not mark the end of a project, but it's its entry into public dialogue, end quote. I am grateful you grappled with myriad issues and images and wove them together into something both beautiful and horrifying. Gia Tolentino's essay is equally as searing as your bold imagery. You both are asking us to be awake, be aware, think about what it means to look 
end to see. So in conclusion, when I landed back from the journey your book initiated, I had another analogy. Surface tension, in my opinion, is a canary in our coal mine of now. Welcome, Tabitha. You've kept me very busy. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm so glad you're here and that we get to unpack this together. Um, I am curious when along your journey, you knew you were working with a really powerful tool. Well, I don't know if I thought about the tool part of it, but I am a photographer, artist who feels as if almost every picture has been taken. So I'm constantly grappling with uh, what can I make that I haven't seen before? And I don't think about the technology involved. I don't think about the equipment I need. I don't often, I don't even think about whether it's possible to shoot what I want to see. And um, so I, I was trying to read some chapters from my husband's book on a plane, on a PDF, on an iPad. And I couldn't really see the words. I could just see my swiping because of the, where the airplane uh, seat light was. And I started to notice, I just thought the patterns were really interesting. And I felt like it was sort of a metaphor of me not being able to get to the real stuff um, and the technology sort of getting in my way. And um, I thought that that was the very first sort of kernel. I was working on other things at the time, but um, that was the jumping off point to then have several false starts in other processes um, until I got to the one that you see in the surface tension book. Mm. It's interesting because um, the kernel is actually a happy accident, right? Something got visualized that connected to something that you've been thinking about. Um, I threw in some quotes just that, um, as I said, um, I, uh, I went for resources that helped ground me because you had me going in so many different uh, directions. And I really appreciated when I finally landed on the atmosphere um, because what was really interesting is you do, in my opinion, pierce layers and we go through layers of atmosphere. And then also in Gia's um, um, essay, she talks about atmosphere. Um, so it was really apt. And um, this quote here, the entire world is shining with things we cannot see. Um, there's plenty of shining things as well. So I appreciate that you bring them together and kind of let us see this, uh, the contradiction. Um, this image is from your recently uh, just came down, your exhibition at the Mills College Museum of Art. Um, and I open with it because I love in the essay how uh, the way that Gia looks at our, uh, our iPhones is she's calling it the I as an E-Y-E. And I you know, I'm a sucker for analogy and metaphor. So I love how she rolled that in. And um, in what we're, what we're going to talk about, um, 
I had asked you, I just want to step into how you got to surface tension or some of the other ways that bringing together the surface of what you were photographing and what's behind it, what the, the way to this book, what are some of the steps and stepping stones for you? Well, for all my projects, um, I believe probably because of my former job as a reporter, I tend to read and research a lot um, when I'm at the start of an idea. So I'm simultaneously searching for something that looks like something you haven't seen before, or at least, I mean, in this case, these are things we see every day. We just don't look at them in this way. And then also to see if there's actually any uh, factual basis for the impulse that I have. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that, but I, I think that that comes from being um, a reporter and needing, mm -hmm. you know, sort of evidence of black and white objective truth to underscore a more nuanced view of the world. And I do think that one of the early, it's a short story really, and every, everyone can download it uh, just like I did as a PDF online uh, by E.M. Forster. I was trying to get a sense of the context. Like it's so easy to blame every bad thing in the world on the internet or on technology. That just seems like a cop out. So I was looking for context and obviously that leads you to the industrial revolution. And um, so I found this, I, I was reading this story and it's basically about um, people living underground in isolated cells, never seeing each other and communicating only by audio and visual devices. And in this world, original thought and direct observation are discouraged. Uh, I think there's even a quote that says something like, beware of firsthand ideas. And basically humanity has been overtaken by the quote unquote machine. And this is written in 1909. So, um, that was really eye-opening for me. And there's the, my, my favorite, or my, uh, I guess the most pertinent quote for me, the one that stuck in my head is, is um, the, the short story is called The Machine Stops. And it's E.M. Forster again. And he writes, we have lost the sense of space. We have lost a part of ourselves. Can you not see that it is we that are dying and that down here, the only thing that really lives is the machine. And for me, that felt like a description of the state of mind I'm in when I'm late to go pick up my child from school because I've been online and lost track of time and what I'm doing and how many windows I have open and how many emails I forgot to send that are half written and you know things in a shopping cart that I have forgotten about and you know, just the myriad of tasks that you're doing at once, and yet you have no sense of what you've accomplished and where the time has gone. And uh, so the fingerprints on top of the device, whatever it may be, a phone or an iPad, in my case, for this, the purpose of this project, I used an iPad because it's a larger surface area, um, but those fingerprints are kind of a GPS map of how you've spent your time. And it was sort of proof that you've done something. It is, it is a, you know, also a, other things, but that first impulse was the actual 
path of this sort of spiritual essence of, of sort of the ghost of what you've done. And um, I knew, you know, the, the Mills show, this particular image you have up was really like the, the ideal way to see the work because I wanted it to be seen as something you're not normally used to seeing. So I didn't want it the size of a phone or an iPad. It needed to be larger than that. And the reason I, I shot it with a view camera was not to be, you know, twee and analog and to please the purest uh, photographers out there, but because the 8x10 negative would allow the fingerprints to stay in focus when I made, in this case, a picture that's 10 by 20 feet. Um, it's just a vinyl piece of um, you know, piece of vinyl, so it's not an actual photograph technically, but um, that's the way we installed it. And so the other thing about the the view camera, but this was a total after the fact thinking, was that you know in in its inception, photography, analog photography, was also seen as the latest technology. And people were skeptical about it weaving fictions and um, you know, telling untruths about individual lives or historical events. So I liked that connection to the technology. Mm. I think my projects are pretty much really overthought in terms of all the different intentions happening simultaneously. Um, and you know, it, it really did end up feeling like I had succeeded in visualizing the invisible effects of technology on our psychological state. And even though my projects all look very different, I would think, um, I think in the end, they're all about psychological states and trying to visualize something that actually can't be seen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, it's, and it's so obvious. I mean, your photo, your journalistic background really um, leads you, it lends to being a, a, a wonderful foundation for the rest of your creative process. And it sounds like um, the mediation that you can do is answering something for yourself, like this idea of um, making visual psychological processes. Because when you were describing how you didn't want to make something that was was done before, what you're really doing is making things that make us look at things differently than before. Um, so I found that reverberating a lot. And I can't help but think the image we're looking at, which is this, I don't know the dimensions, but it's as tall as that ceiling and probably 15 or more feet wide, you've got an eye. And I think that again, you layer these metaphors that, you know, the phone is basically like we're having like detectives with us. They can tell us the coordinates of where we stood on a particular day. And they're even spewing up our memories at different times. So again, you're layering a metaphor here with the yeah. size of the eye when it's this big. I mean, I definitely, um, so I, shot, I, I definitely selected that picture along the lines of what Gia Tolentino says in terms of, you know, the, the eye that we're carrying around. It can connect to surveillance. It can connect to us not seeing how we're spending our time. Um, there's a zillion of the attention economy. I mean, there were a lot of different intersections with that picture, but I must say most of the students at Mills, when they came in, um, they noticed that the skin was dark and they noticed the eye was brown and they noticed that it was a female eye. 
So however much, you know, intellectual intention you may, um, you know, uh, put into a photograph that you're making, uh, there's always going to be things that viewers bring to it. And I like, I like the idea of a person of color, female gaze, you know, that's really great, but um, it didn't occur to me till after it was blown up to 20 feet wide. Wow. And how did you, how did you under, are you um, teaching at the college or how did you get that feedback? I'm a terrible teacher. I'm way too impatient. <laughs> How'd you get the feedback from the students? I was there walking people through the show, uh, you know, sometimes three or four days a week, um, collectors and dealers and curators and all the art world types that um, I do feel like it's my job to uh, expose them. I really wanted to, people to see the work at scale and my studio is not big enough to have all that stuff hanging in there. So even though they look really tiny in this picture on the, on the left-hand side, those images are five by seven feet and the images on the right, smaller ones are 30 by 40. So I can handle 30 by 40 inches in my studio, but not the five by seven feet ones. So um, I kind of treated it almost as a gallery or a showroom. So, yeah, which and, is great. I like know, that. I did, I did interact with the docents and tell them about the work and, you know, I was at the opening. So I was there a lot and tried to interact with the people at the school as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And I do love what um, viewers bring. I mean, it is this circular loop, right? You don't know what someone's going to see in photograph or pull out. And I actually think that kids have an uncanny ability to see things that go right over the adults' heads. Uh, I've had that happen often. Before we move to a different image, I just wanted to um, share some of what Gia was, how she described. It was kind of chilling, but the eye of the iPhone. Um, and she says in the essay, a wordless evocation of the way care fights distance in our everyday life. We cede the world to abstraction, consumption, and misuse, stroking every hour in the hopes of gaining unlimited knowledge, an instinctive need, like a plant needs the sun, compulsively seeking love and terror devoid of meaning. This constant confrontation with the maelstrom of dizzying global coexistence. And she talks about how ultimately it, it narrows what we're feeling. It, it can numb us uh, and distance us um, at the same time that it's contradictory that somehow it's um, connecting us. Um, yeah, the, I thought that the way that she, ex I mean, first of all, I'm so grateful to Gia Tolentino and feel um, so blessed. It's my favorite part of the book for sure, her essay. But I do think the way, um, you know, we are, the reason we're zooming in on protests or the fires or um, the apocalyptic images from my book um, are because we, there is compassion there, there is empathy, there is uh, connection. And, um, but the, the technology, the the quickness of the and the flood of imagery is is what she means by care fighting distance and I I love that the way I think it's the ending of the essay and she says you know but um the question is whether this is going to make us more human or she hopes that it makes us more human and not less 
-hmm. And the fact that I've never, I had never talked to her. I had never interacted, you know, in person with her at all and never had a conversation about the work. And the fact that she gleaned that from just looking at the work, I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I, as much explaining as I do to have somebody um, who's basically a very talented social critic um, see, put into words what I was trying to put into pictures, um, she just nailed it. Absolutely. And that's what I mean. I, I, it was like a cacophony between the images and the written word because it and then what it was what was happening in my own mind with all of it. Um, I did bring in a couple of um, uh, visuals that kind of talk about on your way to. Yeah, sure. Do you want me to explain the, the misfires? Yeah, sure. That would be great. Um, so I, I generally go through several processes before I end up with the one that works. Um, and I just think it's a necessary journey. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe there are other people who just walk out the door and start shooting amazing pictures. Probably Lee Freelander does. But um, for me, it takes a while. So I... I started using my Hasselblad, which is a medium format, six centimeter by six centimeter inch negative or centimeter negative, uh, black and white. And I started shooting uh, just the iPad all by itself with no background image. And uh, I generated some beautiful gelatin silver prints that were very, um, you know, I felt like they were really interesting, but nostalgic in a way. And I also felt like it was too similar to um, some a painter like Franz Klein, for example. Um, so then after that, I switched to color and I increased the size of the negative so that I could blow it up much larger. And um, still I had no background. Do you have a picture of that after this? I think so. Well, we've got the yeah, tin so type. And so that's, that's my very, I mean, literally, I think it's the first version of the iPad. My son is so embarrassed that I own it. Um, but it served its purpose. And so uh, I just lean an iPad against a flat backdrop. I let, obviously, in this case, I let the fingerprints accumulate for months. And I thought that that might generate a more interesting picture than one um, that only had a couple of passes of my son playing video games or me using it to check my email or what have you. I would have friends come over uh, or if, if friends came over, I would have them do something on the iPad just to have different kinds of fingerprints because for some reason I felt like um, I didn't want the redundancy of the same print over and over I was just sort of experimenting. I didn't know how they were going to turn out when they were really big. I tried them out shooting in my studio at dawn. I tried sunset light. This looks like somewhat in the middle of the day. I took all these copious notes about that process and none of it really mattered in the end. Um, but again, I just felt like it was, uh, wasn't, it wasn't the social criticism angle of it as much. It was just more a meditative approach to the material. And I felt like it was very much about touch and not about what we're actually seeing behind or on the screen. And I wanted it to be about both. And so then I decided to add a background to it. And then, and it's pretty simple. Do you have another picture? Yeah, um, I do. Is it, is, does that help? Just more color. Um, again, lovely, but I felt like it was a bit toothless. 
I can't remember. I don't know if I do. Um, yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. So I just have a, so the, the reason it doesn't, you know, you can take out your phone and, and, you know, shine it to a, a, some sort of side light, even just from a window and you'll see all the markings and the stuff. And, and I generally, I don't know why, but I wipe it off of my pants many times a day to get rid of it. So I can see more easily the stuff behind it. And so you know, we've all seen this, these sort of markings, and um, I felt like they needed more meaning, which is why I added the background. But one of the things that everyone always asks me if they're interested in this process is, so why, you know, why are the fingerprints so noticeable? Because it's not when I shine it. Well, first of all, I have basically a movie light, an RE, natural daylight balanced for the photographers out there, um, that I, I do, you know, ch change the position a zillion different ways because I can't see where it's going to hit. And often because it's I'm trying to make it so intense, it often creates a hot spot. And then over time, I figured out that actually if I just brought the monitor light down so that the pictures kind of looked muddy while I was shooting them after I scanned them, I could then increase um, the brightness and among other things. So I, I start, you know, it, it's like this and the picture is so dark, right? And there's some light parts, but then, you know, so the negative is here and it's very, it's pretty thin. This probably should have been longer. Um, and then the, just the contact sheet looked like that, which is like yucky, but you know, I don't know how well you can see it, but over here, you know, all I have to do is change the exposure after I make the drum scan and you have a picture that shows both the background and um, the fingers markings without them being overexposed. Sometimes there have been a hot spot that landed in a good place and I've left it in, but generally, you know, you don't want places that are black or places that are bright white. Um, so the technical part of it, even though it took me several stages to come to, um, it's quite simple. And um, eventually I started using gels and there are different colors of the fingerprints and the surface and the background. I, I was trying to make sure that there was a differentiation between the two. And, and so you experiment and it's a little bit more tedious and longer process because it's analog and I have to drive them to a lab and then they process them and I get the contact sheets back and then I make a scan and, you know, you don't really know what you've got until several steps, but um, for me, the surface area was worth it because I had an eight by 10 negative shooting essentially an eight by 10 device. So a one-to-one -one relationship is very useful if you want to make large scale exhibits, which I, I am thinking of a book at the same time that I'm thinking of exhibits, but um, I, I knew that with an eight by 10 negative, I could crop intensely for the book if I wanted just to show the fingerprints and zoom in. And that was a, that was I was very happy the editors at RVB wanted to slice up and crop the pictures so that the fingerprints were um, pronounced on some pages. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting, well, a lot. I mean, that tells like your diligence. That's what I mean about you're an intrepid explorer. And then you really fight with the medium to get it to do what you want. And I think I understood from looking and listening that you actually started to understand whose fingerprints had more like sweat versus um you know what was on the finger print you you spoke somewhere when I was listening about your son having um 
being in puberty and having hormones and that those actually gave you more information. So that you went from this, when you started that first idea of like, everybody who comes in your door touches the iPad, that sent you in one direction, but then you went, you know, you pull back, you go in another, and then you become this expert on what is happening with what it is that you're going after. I came into it wondering if you made images that were actually capturing grime and sweat and all of our stuff on the glassy surface and then choosing other images behind it. So I, I learned- No, I, I mean, I could have done that, but there was no reason to. <laughs> I, just, I just put them up on the iPad while I was shooting it. Mm -hmm. um, so you, it's definitely possible, but probably needs Photoshop skills that I don't have. <laughs> you know, Occam's razor in my, in my case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's interesting because um, I think that you, I love that you were talking about, you wanted it to be about touch, but then at that point it was about too much touch and how you kept working to find the, the kind of um, synergy and almost tension, which did become tension between the things you were trying to talk about. Um, well, touch, touch is where it really started. The book, the mm. book has less uh, focus on, on that, but it, yeah. it was the early stage of the project. And, and, you know, from this, there's this, the picture that I showed you the negative four and which is over my shoulder is a picture of my daughter blowing me a kiss goodnight into a photograph shot on an iPad. And then she emailed it to me upstairs, even though I was upstairs. So when I got that on my phone, I thought, well, this isn't the way we do things like that. <laughs> There's something that's not the same in being kissed goodnight through a JPEG. So I marched downstairs and gave her some obnoxious par parental lecture about um, how important it was to have, you know, real relationships and how there's a sense of intimacy there and how we're bonded that way. And I don't know what I said, but it was all off the top of my head and, and uh, totally unresearched because this was the very start of the project. And when I left, I thought, is any of what I just said true? You know, because she was like, oh, mom, that's so old fashioned. You know, she didn't really see the difference and I wanted her to see the difference. So I verbally tried to explain it, but based on nothing. So uh, based on no research anyway. So then I went to Google Scholar and um, other books and, and learned how little scientists like people, experts actually know about the sense of touch, but they do know a few things and all of them point to my uh, initial impulse was that mm. it does create community. It does create empathy. It does create compassion. You do get less angry if you're in a fight and somebody, you know, hugs you or the person you're arguing with even puts their arm on your, their hand on your arm. Basketball players score more when they physically like touch each other instead of just verbally say, great job. If they do a chest bump or um, a fist bump even, or a hand or, or around somebody's shoulder, all of that increases the, their scoring. Um, so little, little um, experiments along the way like that did actually support what I said to my daughter. But in the beginning, I was just like uh, free, just uh, brains, you know, talking off the top of my head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can completely relate to that texting within your own house and also saying like, you know, no, this doesn't cut it. Or I even love when you call and, uh, 
and they'll they won't pick up the phone but then they'll shoot you a text <laughs> it's just like can we have a little bit more than this screen um what i have up right now is another of the um the mills gallery and i do understand the difference between the surface tension project versus the the, the book so that the project has a much wider range from the image that you just described of your daughter kissing you goodnight on the screen to the one that we're looking at now, which is actually the caravan of people migrating. So you, 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 have, you have this really wide range of what you have behind the screen. And I was really amazed looking um, through, even in the images that we'll go look at specifically from the book, all the sources that you went to, you know, from Pinterest to um, USA Today to a local police blog to um, Instagram, uh, your own text messages, uh, your friends' vacation pictures. Um, so the subject matter is wide, but you made specific choices for surface tension to really hone in on, on frankly, more cataclysmic aspects yeah, no, of very, our- it's a very apocalyptic book. I, I think we find ourselves living amidst a number of compounding hells drive. And my editors in France were very interested in that, you know, in making a tight book about the global pandemic, the environmental disasters, increasingly polarized and deadly political debates. And I think that something, you know, the the- it's not, it wasn't so much the specific background event. I've, I felt like the way that it connected to technology is that there is the, the blurriness and the smears um, between different ideological movements. It really deals in misinformation and disinformation and malinformation. And so there was that aspect of the subject in the background connecting to the fingerprints on top. But, I, and that, that really came from the Surgeon General issuing Surgeon General's advisory on misinformation in, I guess it was last July. And he said that today we live in a world that mis misinformation poses an imminent and insidious threat to our nation's health. And, you know, in the past, public health threats were about food and water and smoke. So, I was kind of shocked that the, these were being equated. Well, not really shocked, but in addition, this, this really is about, you know, the, we hung, the curator, Stephanie Hanner and I hung 15 pieces off that beautiful mill ceiling so that you could walk through them in the back. You know, once you hang a photo, what are you gonna do with the back, right? That's always a problem. So I thought it would be great to have mirrored plexi on the back because then you would be pulling up the idea that these images are reflected onto you all day, every day. You wake up, the sky is blue. Maybe there's lovely fresh snow on the ground. Maybe it's a gorgeous, you know, spring day. And then you open your phone. And everything, you know, falls apart because you're inundated with all of these disturbing images about every single solitary, terrible thing that happened in the last 24 hours. And there has never been a time where that has been the case. And exactly. my question is whether as a human being, a heart and a soul and, you know, a brain some days, most days, that we're built for that. I don't know that I'm built to have that 
reflected onto me? And what is it doing? How is it rewiring our brain to have that happen? And so, yes, the people who went to the exhibit were reflected into the protests as well, but it wasn't so much about resistance, although, of course, I think social justice and, and you know, all of those instincts are ones that I agree with. I think that it, it was more about the idea of how much is being reflected onto us that we don't even comprehend. And perhaps, we don't know yet, but perhaps it is rewiring our heart and our brain in a way that we wouldn't want to. Absolutely. I, I know my kids are young adults and it was middle school when we were called in as parents and we were given a uh, in-service basically by this amazing South African psychologist talking about the fact that our kids were in what's called the cyber immersion generation and that the difference between how we see, think, work with knowledge is so vastly different. And the reason we were called in is because of bullying on the internet. And this idea that especially, I mean, think of it, middle school to high school, I mean, and obviously it goes on into adulthood, unfortunately, but this idea, cancel culture, the bullying, there's nowhere to hide. And it's 24 seven. Like, you know, if you used to get bullied, it was around school. And at a certain point, you went home and those people weren't near you and couldn't get to you. But that's not true anymore. And um, having my adolescent daughter go through adolescence with these incessant selfies, I know impacted. I remember they were going to a prom and pre-prom, there was a million different images of dresses to the point that like, like, it was like, oh my God, they could not go get what they wanted because they're all in a dressing room showing each other what they're getting and, and, and adding likes to what they're going to buy. And you have to have an impact of this. Like, there's no doubt about it. And I think that's why I was so taken with how you're really asking us to think about that, to like our spectatorship and to think. But I want to make one point, and then I want to get to some of the specific images in the book. And that's that you're talking about touch, and it began with touch, and that there's ways like the profound science of touch, that there can be compassionate touch, there can be issues with lack of touch, and there can be harmful touch. And then you're equating it with what you're bringing into the background, which has those qualifications too, right? There's, there's really overwhelming, hor horrific imagery. And then there is just absolutely stunning and beautiful imagery. And that our knowledge is, is something that's being manipulated. And how that whole, the Surgeon General saying that misinformation is actually affecting your health. I would say just one one cap, caveat there. I I definitely used uh, imagery that came up in my newsfeed and articles on you know for example uh, Trayvon Martin or uh, George Floyd, but I have I specifically did not shoot any images of people being re-victimized. So if there was you know extreme police force, the the uh, version that's most common in my project relating to harmful touch, uh, none of those actual incidents are, are used. I didn't really feel like as a, uh, a white female middle-class artist that that was my place. 
Well, I appreciate you bringing that up because there is such re-victimization and uh, it does get noted in the essay how Trayvon Martin's family has had to live with what is online about their very personal child's death. Um, one of the things that I've already put in that will go in our summary is a, is a poem by Sharon Old called For You that was in the New Yorker and instigated by Trayvon Martin. And another way that art moves this and where you don't, you can move and, and illuminate without re-traumatizing. And I, I can think of, I have not watched specific things because I don't want that image. The knowledge is enough. Right before we go to the book imagery, the one that I have up is something that I appreciated the humor and that you put together porn and cats and made this mosaic on the wall. And yeah, this, when is, this is a uh, Cleveland's Transformer station. Uh, ah. Oh, and, sorry. Um, it's a huge contemporary art center in Cleveland, which um, run by two people I really love. And they uh, have this really beautiful red metal staircase in the middle of the gallery with a, a wall around it. So it's this very separate part of a very large gallery and we weren't sure what to do there. But I did come across in my research in America at least, and I don't know if this is current for 2022, but at the time, the most, the, the time, Americans spent the most time online with two subjects, porn, which didn't surprise me, but the other long duration sitting and watching was cat videos. So I thought it wouldn't, it might add some whimsy to an otherwise fairly apocalyptic dark project to uh, compare the two and often there were times where the position of the actress, actually a woman I know, and I did a documentary with her a long time ago, and I just needed a way to connect to the porn work because it was so overwhelming and so multifaceted that I just focused on her. And if I had thought about the fact that she had red hair, I probably would have chosen someone else because way too many people asked me if that's me. But there were, I don't know if you can see, see it I don't I'm on a small screen but for example this this picture of Chloe and this cat they're on the same color background and they're in the same reclining position and this, this kind of happened over and over and I um so I thought about dip I started making diptychs and then triptychs and then grids and then I thought this was a very activating way of hanging the work because I didn't need to be precious about a picture of a cat it was, you know, a picture of a cat as a cat as a cat. So in terms of covering parts of it or putting pins in it or, you know, some of these are in frames and it was really fun to do. I had a lot of help from Chris McCall at Pier 24 in helping me arrange this. In fact, I think I just, I did it on InDesign and then he flew to Ohio and helped me actually put mm -hmm. it up while I kind of sat on the floor and said yes or no. Wow. Um, well, I actually mislabeled this because I thought it was at Mills, but I've been to the Transformer station. I know Laura and Fred Bidwell as well. And um, that's really fun. And I knew you had shown at the Transformer, but somehow I had that as the Mills, but I appreciate it. This section of the project has not been included in any of the college museum shows I've done. Gotcha. Of, <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. So, I mean, gotcha. none of them are X-rated, but it's just the idea. And frankly, I don't want my work, the project hijacked by people's um, trigger, you know, mm. being by the porn images. So, you are. 
there you have it. So this was just another piece from visual culture, which I have right here and really helped me frame your work. Just this idea that visual culture and the visual realm shapes how people understand their environment and everything from our pleasures to our threats to our obligations, because I think that was all pointed out in surface tension. So here we go into a few images of surface tension. And I love the way that you titled it very clearly. You know, this is from Pinterest. And uh, this happened to be Jennifer W's uh, Pinterest board. And it's titled Unusual Landscapes. I don't know that I would, I, I don't know, when it, it's, it's a California wildfire, I'm assuming, or Nevada. Yeah, so all the, just for people who aren't aware, um, all of the images are appropriated. So none of the background mm -hmm. images are photographs that I actually shot myself. I just put them on my iPad and shot them with a view camera with the fingerprints over the surface. But I would say that I felt like the title being a link to the background images, assuming the website hadn't been hasn't been changed, was a way of sort of making that overt but also just in the background as a former journalist, I did make sure that the video was either amateur or if I could reach out and find the person whose, work, whose picture it was, even if they were amateur, I have a ton of emails and permissions and material and often I made them a print and mailed it to them. And, in, and when it was a professional photographer, I actually had to buy the licensing rights. So I felt like money needed to go to the person who actually the scene, which I am honestly not willing to do any longer. My uh, days of doing that are long over. So I, it's not as if I feel like it, I, I don't like to play fast and loose with other people's work. And with the amateur stuff, I felt like it was uh, important just to, it was kind of fun in, involving them in the process. And I think that's really important and that people uh, that are listening, thinking in terms of appropriated images for, um, frankly, copyright laws, human decency, and then the commercial aspect. And yeah, and once also, you start publishing a book, like the art world is one thing. It's so small. Nobody, not that many people notice unless you're Richard Prince um, or blue, some blue chip artist. But if you're publishing a book, I just didn't want any hassle and I didn't want to get my publisher in trouble. So there are special licenses for things on the cover versus on the inside for, you know, media use, publicity, et cetera. It's, and honestly, it's, it doesn't even cost that much. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a good thing to do and not be fearful of uh, the expense. Yeah. I mean, it, it's actually, when you get into it, it wasn't a massive fee and it's best practices. And we did see when we were putting in the titles and some of those links are still active. Yeah, there, I will never do titles like that again, though. They're, they're, little. they're hard to copy correctly. Special, yeah, you can't use, and you can't use special characters on the JPEGs when you're saving the files. So there's all this like consolidation happening. And sometimes the, the titles are, you know, like a page long because the link has so much code in it and they were very, very cumbersome. And the pictures now all have nicknames because my assistant and I cannot talk about pindress.com backslash Jennifer W backslash unusual dash landscapes, you know, like that's just not going to happen. It's going to be, you know, palm tree. Palm, tree, palm tree, telephone pole fire. Anyway. Well, it actually, it did create, it was very interesting. It brought your appropriation you know, visual and act and actual, but um, it also 
you didn't have to think of titles, which can really, you know, stump people as well. If there's anything, what do you call this one in your vernacular? Uh, this one I have never printed or shown and I love it so much. So we don't talk about it that much, but it <laughs> <laughs> can't say I've ever had, I mean, yeah, that would be hard to describe. Well, it's interesting because I had gone through the book and I think I chose seven or eight images. And then when we exchanged JPEGs, there was just a couple that were different, but I went with what RVB had so nicely made available. One of the, this image, which I can read for, is from Instagram and it's the Los Angeles Fire Department. I know that in the book you were purposefully basically giving the hot spots of now, no pun intended, but there is this idea, and I'm not sure if this was a conscious one, there is somewhat of an American flavor because a lot of these things happened in the United States, even though they're obviously happening elsewhere. And so I was struck with the red, white, and blueness, even though there's orange and yellow, et cetera. So did that come into your thought process? I definitely had a discussion with RBB Paris about not limiting it to American political domestic policy, but the similar themes are happening all over the world. So it really did not bother them. And, you know, there's only so many images you can put in a book. So that was not a determining factor for editing. It was really more about taking out pictures that seemed too quotidian, too journalistic, and ones that were more about, in keeping ones that were more about atmosphere and that could translate into a metaphor about something larger. So the palette, I definitely noticed, I mean, even in non-political images, some of them are red, white, and blue. So, but then the French also use red, white, and blue. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty popular. Yeah, and it was just, it was an interesting, observation. And I did get the feel like there were times when I was looking at it, like this one's from Twitter and it's a BLM from BLM report. I appreciate that you give us the flavor and not the specific. I think that's, that's helpful in having our reactions to it. I love too, one of the things that's interesting is your choice of the paper and the cover because oh, yeah. um, this covers kick-ass frankly and like a really unique idea and design and then I was getting upset because my fingerprints are now all over my book and it was oh, like you're <laughs> I thought so it's not my idea but <laughs> Remy Remy at RVB the designer I mean I wanted the paper to be glossy but it was his idea to add an extra layer of varnish which is very expensive so that you really can't turn the pages without your fingerprints becoming part of the work and I just felt like that was a huge, like meta, total photo nerd, photo book nerd uh, move. But I me, love those me are the details that differentiate this book from other books. And I think the binding is really unusual. I like the size, how it's long and skinny. And I feel like that rectangle is much more activating than something that when you open it up becomes a square and and they, it's also, I, I mean, I've asked Remy about this and it, it actually fit, fit the ratio of the view camera pictures as well. So that worked. Oh, interesting. And I know this is another design choice, but the very kind of blush font color was gorgeous. I really, 
appreciated that. And I actually think reading, because it was such an intense but short read, it was helpful that it was in that color. And I also think that you're trying to like basically say like, hello, the world is not black and white and stop trying to make these very complex things black and white. But I have to tell you, I like the, the thickness and the depth of uh, the paper when it's not glossy, the ones in between, and my fingerprints are, are now all over that too, right? <laughs> so, so I got over it after I realized that was kind of part of the process. I just want to go through a few more and then we will jump to questions from other folks. It's really interesting. I don't know when in the process I learned that you weren't mirroring the fingerprints with the, with the background like outside of a reality. That was, that was interesting. Do most of them show up white like that? Uh, if... If it depends what time of day it is, it depends how I adjust the file afterwards. I mean, those could easily be blue because probably the sort of auto setting would have taken all that yellow and pushed you into a blue realm for the neutral. I mean, they are actually a little blue on the lower right. There are so many images at this point, it's hard to think of a common denominator, but I did, you know, I didn't play with them too much, mainly because of my skill set, but the, I added, ended up adding gels and actually the, the main thing I use is a headlamp on my head because I don't actually have another hand to, to move around the color the way I wanted it to. So I could shake my head and operate the view camera at the same time. I didn't have to have extra arms, but I felt like it was useful to not have them be so redundant. I felt like it added another level of atmosphere, especially if the picture was very neutral. It was kind of nice to have the, the surface or the fingerprints show up in a color. Yeah, well, you're certainly quite the innovator coming up with the headlamp for it. And I do think in terms of the sequencing of the book, there's a beautiful quality and you do get to these blues that are just gorgeous, which is what's so interesting, why I think it's so beautiful and, and it's kind of a break. I know that in, in the Mills show, you made the, the mirrored images. And was that just pure fingerprints that went into oh, that? The, oh, you mean in the, in the room, the audio video room? Uh, yeah, those actually were just fingerprints, but a lot of filters on those fingerprints. And those were very much about selfie culture. It was the, called the Narcissus Room, and it was three pieces that actually debuted at Transformer Station, but did not have audio and video to go with it. And we set up a room to look like the Caravaggio painting of uh, Narcissus staring into the lake. And in this case, the pictures were mounted on the floor and the people, it was, the black background was just black. And if you leaned over and looked into them, you were reflected back on yourself. And, you know, we had a quote from um, Gia on the wall in mirrored font saying, who are we if we don't see the wildfires, the convenience store burning, the armed mob invading the U.S. Capitol? Who are we if we're not looking at ourselves? And who do we become when we are? That was, that was quite the quote I I saved that one as well. And I noticed this title as well. This is from the Arab Spring and Al Jazeera. Yeah, they're, they're long and complex. 
subtitles and you used news sources, tornado, and that one, which is so interesting because this is incredibly about police brutality and protests about it. It really, in my mind, circles back to the first one that you were playing with where you felt it was too specifically painterly. So to know what this is, is amazing. It's just a, it's a detail from the sky of this uh, protest. So Mm -hmm. that just gives you an example. I mean, the book is not small, but all of those things are very sharp. All those markings are very sharp. And it just gives you an idea of, you know, how much flexibility you have if you're shooting with an eight by 10 negative. I'm, I'm sure if you're really good retoucher or great at Photoshop, there are ways to compensate as well but yeah, um, in the book me it it was just nice to know yes we can take two inches by two inches off of that larger picture and make it a spread yeah that's a, what a playground frankly yeah. in terms of what you could work with and I ended on this quote just because it was the hopefulness which I do feel pervades uh, both in Gia said, and anytime I've listened to you talking about the work that that you lean into the hope that is an uncertainty and that this, our humanity will understand uh, or grapple with our machine world where it is now. And I I will put in the link and I won't go on about this because I want to open for questions, but I was listening to a podcast. It was Ezra Klein's and it was an author uh, who wrote The Extended Mind and it's her work, her last name, it's Anna Murphy something. I'll get that to you. And basically she is a scientist saying how we often talk about computers as if they're a brain, like they have a brain and we have a brain and isn't our brain like a computer. And she's like, you couldn't be more wrong. We aren't. Um, computers are linear. There's algorithms. It's math. It's, it's, it is programmed and they go the same place the same way because we're telling them to go that way. Whereas our brains are like magpies and that we take all these different things and we process and that our own thinking is very much looping and we, we loop things together and then they go out into the world and different people add different things to it and it comes back. And so how we, I really appreciated because I was listening to that while I'm thinking about you and this idea of the brain and, uh, and technology. So this last quote is the great morning, which is for all appears in the East. Let it, let its light reveal us to each other who walk on the same path of pilgrimage. And I think I chose it just because of this idea that we're all in this together and we're all activating it and we're all participating in it and we're all being affected by it. And that hopefully our ability to see our connectivity and build on our connectivity to uh, touch uh, each other prevails.